Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 44. Before we get into this episode, just a little bit of a heads up. I have some works going on going on in my apartment, so there might be some uh, background noise. Let's hope it's uh, nothing uh, nothing too bad so that you can still hear uh, the audio properly. But uh, yeah, just a fair warning for you before we get into the episode today. I also have an, a house cleaning item, which is actually a listener suggestion to crowdsource tips and advice from... Uh, members of the audience that successfully balance family, career, and triathlon. So the thinking that uh, this listener had was to put together sort of short-form interviews, maybe in the form of rapid-fire questions regarding time management tips, etc., or even just sending in voicemails. So you could potentially send in voicemails directly just based on some sort of template question that I, I could provide you with. And and then we wouldn't even have to go to the trouble of scheduling an interview because by definition, you are probably very busy. So that might be an issue. So my call to action is this. If you are an athlete that successfully balances family, career and triathlon or whatever your chosen endurance sport is, just email me and let me know and we can either schedule a short interview or I'll give you instructions for how to leave a voicemail and what sort of questions to answer and tips to give. So hopefully a lot of you, you don't need to be like a Kona qualifier or Kona winner or anything like that. If you manage to train consistently and you manage to improve from wherever your starting point is, then you can, for all intents and purposes, consider yourself a successful athlete in this manner. So, so don't think that the bar is set too high by, by any means. All right, finally, before the questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. And uh, definitely go and check out the Q&A episode that I did with Andy Blow in episode 191. So just this past Monday on the 22nd of July. And uh, yeah, I do want to make a correction. I stated in that episode that the episode would be episode 192 and the show notes would be on show notes page 192. That's obviously not correct because I had to re-record the interview that, that I had originally scheduled for 191. So, uh, so yeah, that's the reason that I, uh, I put the, uh, the interview with Andy Blow a bit ahead of schedule. Either way, go and check that out. There's tons of useful hydration advice in that episode. Very practical, but also with a solid scientific evidence base behind it. So well worth a listen. And you can now take a chance to get 20% off your entire precision hydration order for electrolyte products with the promo code at that triathlon show 20. And uh, that code is valid until the end of August. I believe we changed it so that you will be all the way until the end of August rather than one month from when the episode aired. So you have time, but make sure that you make use of that right now. Of course, if you haven't yet tried Precision Hydration, then you can get your first sample for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka, which is uh, the world leader in wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, eyewear, and other high-performance apparel in triathlon and endurance sports categories. They're used by athletes like Mario Mola, Javier Gomez, 
Katie Zafiris and Flora Duffy. And uh, I know many members of the audience uses them because I get so many emails uh, with people thanking me for the promo code. So it's uh, Roka that you should thank actually and not me. Uh, but uh, it's still great to hear that people are uh, feeling that uh, the same way that I do about the, the products like the Maverick uh, wetsuits and uh, the uh, Gen 2 Aero tri suits, the, the Sim Pro buoyancy shorts. Those are some of the products that I really, really love and use all the time. So go and check them out on roca.com and use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. The first question for today is from Itai in Israel, who writes, Hi, Michael. Uh, we all know that our body is using more carbs as the intensity increases. My question is, is this based on pace or heart rate when running? Or is it when cycling, is it based on power rather than heart rate? For example, today I went for a long, easy run and I was keeping a steady zone 2 pace for an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, as for the heart rate, it started at zone 2 but climbed all the way to zone 4 because it got really hot and humid. So the question is, what did my body use as fuel during this run? Based on pace, it should be mostly fat. Based on heart rate, um, mostly carbs. Thank you, Itai, for your question. This is a really good one. And uh, yeah, I had to really sit down and think quite a bit about how to, first of all, like wrap my wrap my head around the question and or not the question but the answer and what actually is happening and and really get my uh, get my thoughts on paper as well to try to structure it in a way that would make sense so the first thing that i want to preface this answer with is that what i'm going to say now is my understanding of what happens uh, it is though a very complex question and a complex answer it's not super simple and clear cut so, and i'm not looking at a textbook answer here and reading verbatim from that so if anybody has different ideas or if anybody has done research in this area then uh, please do let me know contact me and i would be happy to learn more but uh, in my uh, opinion from from what i know about metabolism i'm going to answer as uh, best as i can and i think it's going to be a fairly good answer and fairly correct answer even if with the preface that i i just made just want to make sure that you are aware that that things aren't this is a complex question and it's not always super clear cut what is actually going on so when you increase your pace uh, on the run or you increase your power on the bike then the rate of energy production in your muscles it must by definition go up and when that rate of energy production uh, increases, if, if we assume that we are at or beyond the maximum fat oxidation point, or fat max for short, this is roughly the top end of your zone 2. Uh, if we are at or beyond this point and we increase intensity, then your oxidation of fats is going to decrease and your oxidation of carbs is going to increase, uh, which also means that the ratio of uh, carbs to fat is going to increase. And this is all based on, on fairly straightforward met metabolism of the muscle cells and the three ways, the three uh, systems that uh, produce energy for the muscles. The creatine phosphate system for very short 10 second or less uh, type of efforts, the anaerobic glycolysis system, which uh, is uh, very, very strong for up to, let's say, 30 seconds, still contributing a fair amount for events lasting two minutes or so. But even at two minutes, your aerobic contribution is pretty massive. 
so then the third system is that aerobic system of course aerobic oxidation of carbohydrate and fats so what happens as you move past your first lactate threshold or your first ventilatory threshold which again we can proxy that to be fairly close to your fat max so that top end of zone two that's where the contribution of your anaerobic glycolysis system kicks in a bit more i mean it's very small still don't get me wrong it's perhaps as you just move into zone three a percent or two i I don't know off the top of my head but but something very small like that Uh, but still it kicks in a bit more and it will increase linearly with increased intensity uh, essentially and uh, this process anaerobic glycolysis uses carbohydrates uh, exclusively it can't run on any other fuel Uh, now how this relates to your question and what what makes the question quite uh, interesting is that uh, we use phase zones as proxies for where this increased increase in anaerobic contribution starts to happen that's when we move from zone two to zone three and we use heart rate zones but again they are proxies for where these changes occur so they are not absolutely correct there are no there are no absolutely correct heart rate or pace zones or boundaries to tell us exactly what happens where and at what intensity and even a few weeks ago i uh, would have said that uh, lactate is uh, what we can use to get a much clearer picture and much more accurate picture. And yeah, I think that we, I, I would still say that we can. I still think that we can. However, my interview with Shannon Grady, it did make me uh, a bit more cautious with drawing conclusions from snapshots of lactate concentration. Lactate is a direct look into metabolism in a way, but, uh, but also that interview, it did, uh, Shannon did talk about how these snapshots of uh, lactate at any point in time, this the net lactate values, uh, they do not tell the whole story. And uh, that's something that I learned from that talk, definitely. So I would be more cautious about drawing definitive conclusions from lactate as well. However, I still think that it's the best uh, option to actually know what's going on in your body, in your cells, when it comes to your metabolism compared to pace and heart rate. So because lactate is produced in glycolysis and used, uh, the, the lactate that is produced in the anaerobic glycolysis process is then used in the aerobic energy production. So as part of the, uh, the chain of events that's taking place, it's the best we have as it's not a proxy, but it's actually something that is uh, taking part in these processes. So... Uh, that's a theory and uh, but let's talk about a couple of scenarios including the one that you uh, have in your question and uh, we have two different scenarios where i would suggest that heart rate especially is not uh, necessarily the best measure of uh, metabolism and we should be very careful with it and the first one is interval training because as soon as you if you do a bike trainer for example and use power you can see and you do an interval workout and especially if you do it on the indoor trainer you can control everything you can see that your power curve will look like very square in a way you'll be going from a very light power to a very hard power and that'll be it and that is of course the rate of energy production that you're that you're producing that's what what power is so when you go for example from 150 watts to 350 watts in an interval workout then uh, as soon as you get to 350 watts there is a massive demand of of energy on energy production in your body 
and uh, your creatine phosphate system will kick in, your anaerobic glycolysis system will kick in, and uh, your VO2, your oxygen uptake, will ramp up so that the uh, uh, the aerobic oxidation can catch up. So that means that earlier on in the interval, you will be using a, a larger proportion of anaerobic glycolysis, and then later on, as your oxygen, your VO2 kinetics, your oxygen uptake catches up, you'll be using a larger proportion of uh, of the the aerobic oxidative system uh, but uh, still overall we can we can make some estimates for uh, how much anaerobic energy and how much aerobic energy you use for for an interval like that so the thing is here that uh, that you've used quite a lot if it's a that it's a high intensity interval you used a quite a long a large contribution of anaerobic energy and by large here we me- might mean something like 10%. It's usually not, not much bigger than that unless we go to really short intervals. But, but let's call it 10% for argument's sake. But that still requires a lot of carbohydrate. And then the part that is uh, taken care of by the aerobic uh, system, uh, that uh, will be mostly carbs because you're if you're above your threshold without going into too much detail. But you can listen to my interview with Sebastian Weber, for example, or you can check out there are some great inside webinars, uh, so inside being Sebastian Weber's company, uh, that uh, show the metabolism here and how it works. And there's a great uh, conveyor belt analogy that uh, that they use to explain this uh, part of the, uh, of the metabolism. So the point here is that you will be using almost only carbohydrate for this interval, uh, for this however long it is. Let's call it five minutes uh, for argument's sake. And... Uh, but your heart rate may it will start in maybe zone one and then quite quickly of course ramp up but but you will have let's say one minute where it's ramping up until it reaches your your threshold heart rate level and then uh, and then it starts to stabilize i guess above above your threshold level level perhaps but uh, or at your threshold level level wherever it may be but still if you look at heart rate you will have a, a completely different picture and of course over the course of entire workout with many intervals like that then you will get quite a different answer if you look at heart rate compared to power or pace if you're talking running but at least in in this situation pace should be used uh, on flat roads where it's actually uh, pretty much linearly related to to power so the second example here where heart rate uh, can be misleading is prolonged exercise. And especially in environmental conditions like like hot temperatures where thermoregulation becomes significant objective for the body to keep exercising. So uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, well as you mentioned here in your example this this is your example exactly so you're running for 1 hour 45 minutes and your heart rate starts in zone 2 but climbs all the way to zone 4 because it really got hot and humid your pace stayed the same the the entire time so you're you're producing as much energy essentially the entire time your energy demands do not change if you're going at the same pace so uh, so how your metabolism is going to work since it's a sub-threshold workout, it's a steady-state workout, it's going to be in a fair, not complete steady-state, but close enough to a steady-state as well, where you're going to use a very small amount of anaerobic energy because you always use that at any intensity, and some of that lactate is going to feed into your uh, into your aerobic oxidative system, and uh, it's going to require carbs as fuel, uh, but uh, you're also going to be able to use a lot of fat as fuel. 
And uh, the reason that your heart rate then starts to go up is that there are several reasons, could be several reasons for this. But for example, uh, you need to pump more blood to the blood vessels near the skin so that you can regulate your core temperature by sweating. Uh, so that's uh, one biggie for sure. Your you can't use all the blood or the blood that is required to go to the muscle is the same throughout the workout. But as you heat up, your core temperature heats up, your body needs to work more to cool you down. So so your heart rate go, is going up just to make sure that you can get all that blood uh, pumping at the rate that it needs to for all the demands to be met, both for thermoregulation, but also for the energy demands that you have to move you forward. And uh, another thing as well is that uh, you are sweating, you are losing blood plasma volume, so your blood may become more uh, viscous in a long uh, hot climate, long workout in a hot climate like this. So uh, that could be another reason that your heart rate goes up, because to get the same volume of oxygenated blood to the working muscles at the same rate, your heart just have has to do more work to get that more viscous blood to your muscle cells. So this all uh, got a bit uh, technical. I didn't mean for it to get that technical, but I guess in your situation to to come back to to practice. If the run was flat, that means that your steady pace also means pretty much steady power and steady energy production. Then I would say that despite the fact that your heart rate rose significantly, I would suggest that your your fat and carbohydrate. Uh, oxidation ratio remained fairly similar fairly constant throughout that workout uh, it didn't change uh, anywhere near as much as your heart rate might have changed at least because the heart rate changed probably for other reasons mainly thermoregulation. and another thing that you might be interested in is that uh, if uh, your zones are correct and you were in zone two actually so uh, pace zone two and heart rate zone two starting out heart rate then increasing due to heat uh, but that's just the way it is. Uh, if you are in zone two, maybe around the, the upper end of zone two, that's quite often around the maximum fat oxidation intensity for many well-trained athletes that uh, train in a smart, structured way. Uh, then that means, and also if you're relatively well-trained, I should add, uh, then I would say that you probably used around 60-65% of your energy or from fat and 35-40% to from uh, carbs. And if you would were to move either direction from that fat max intensity, either go slower or faster, uh, the proportional carbs will go up. So even if you go slower, it actually goes up from that fat max. That doesn't mean that everything should be done at fat max, of course, but that's just to uh, some a point that uh, not a lot of people actually are aware of. So that's quite interesting. And I thought I would mention that. So Itai, I hope that this answers your question. And uh, thank you again for sending it in. The next question is from Todd, who writes, uh, Hi, I'm currently using your intermediate full distance plan. Uh, I'm super excited uh, to use it after having done my own loose programming for a while. I really enjoy the podcast and have had a question that I've been sitting on for a while. I live in Seoul, Korea, and have quick access to lots of amazing trails to run. One starts in my backyard. They are all very hilly and I can't get on them without spending some significant time in heart rate zones 4 and 5. Since I love the trails so much, how much of my VO2 max workouts can I move from the track to the hills if I'm just trying to accumulate time in zone? Is there a difference between speeding around the track with no shade? 
versus running up a mountain trail with nice, friendly, cool tree shade. Can I structure my workouts so that the goal is a certain number of minutes in zone five, for example, and the rest intervals between uh, the work intervals doesn't matter? Also, should there be a cap on the time spent working to get that time in zone? And finally, can elevation gain be something useful that I track monthly? Uh, all right, thank you, Todd, for the questions. So uh, there have been a couple of studies actually comparing VO2 max workouts on hills versus on the track. And uh, credit here to the science and application of high-intensity interval training, the book, and the course on hitscience.com. Uh, this is where I learned uh, the, about these studies. And what these uh, few studies have found uh, in uh, general, in, in summary, is that in terms of uh, the time that you spend where your oxygen uptake, your VO2, is close to your VO2 max, which is the goal of these intro workouts, it is better to do these workouts on the track. So yes, you accumulate more time for the same type of workout, same number of minutes, same number of repeats, same rest intervals. You accumulate more time at uh, close to VO2 max if uh, you do, do it on the track versus running up a hill. And uh, of course, a track could also be replaced by a normal road, a normal flat road. So uh, it doesn't have to be a track specifically, but just flat roads. And uh, for if your goal is normal road triathlons, then I would say that in addition to this time in zone aspect, then just the leg speed training that you get when you're on the track or on the road is a more specific neuromuscular preparation than running uphill would be so it's quite important to to get those uh, those movement patterns and those motor units firing quickly and rapidly so uh, so leg speed training is also quite important to to improve economy among other things so so that would be another reason to not 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 do uh, interval workouts on the flats uh, but it does not mean that doing vo2 max workouts uphill is useless uh, they have some advantages and the main one is that it can be really useful for teaching your body to engage muscles that might not, that might not engage as easily otherwise like your hamstrings and your glutes and your entire posterior chain really uh, but uh, also it's worth being careful and uh, starting out with uh, a small uh, number of intervals and short intervals because the risk of uh, hamstring strains may increase when you're running uphill Another thing to keep in mind, and this I found again in the science application of interval training book, is that uh, some studies found that uh, that if you are doing these workouts uphill for various reasons, uh, 7 to 10% uh, may be an appropriate grade. So I would say don't obsess over this. Like any hill that you can run that feels fine is fine, I guess. So So don't obsess over this. Uh, I'm mostly pointing it out to show that if you do intervals on too steep a hill, something that is uh, higher than 10%, then uh, then you're probably like you're not gaining anything. You're actually losing some benefits. So uh, so rather I would rather go on the low side on uh, low a uh, low gradient or shallow gradient and uh, up until seven to ten percent, but uh, not go much above that because I think that the, then you're not really doing yourself any favors. So uh, so that's another point to keep in mind if you do them uphill. Regarding your second question, whether you can just accumulate the time in zone and not worry too much about rest intervals. So I guess you would just run the trails and when you come to an appropriate hill, you would 
run faster. That's the idea that you have. But uh, I have to say that uh, no rest times do matter and they are quite significant in these interval workouts uh, within reason. Uh, to be honest, uh, from everything that I've found, I don't think there's a big difference between doing a workout like five times three minutes with a two minute or a three minute rest interval, really. Uh, that's uh, splitting hairs. Uh, but if the rest gets much longer than that one to one work to rest ratio, then your oxygen uptake goes down so low that you have to start from scratch basically and and you don't benefit as much from that accelerated uh, via two kinetic those accelerated via two kinetics in the following intervals so so that's the reason to not make the rest intervals go go too long and of course you shouldn't let them go too short either i don't think it makes any sense to go any lower than a two to one work to rest ratio but i all honestly i never do that myself i would typically do if i do three minute intervals i would do take two to three minutes rest uh so two minutes would be my my minimum rest for for those intervals if they are actually vo2 max intervals because otherwise i just don't think that that you're going to hit the intensity that you want to hit in in the workout so don't go too high don't go too low in terms of rest interval duration either I think that one thing that I want to point out, or I know that one thing that I want to point out here, uh, since you are mentioning that you are accumulating a lot of time in zone four and zone five, I would say that, uh, yes, your heart rate goes up to zone four and zone five, but it is quite unlikely that your VO2, if you were to measure it uh, with a gas exchange mask, that, that it's actually at any significant time in zone five, if we talk about zone five specifically, or close to VO2 max, uh, despite the fact that the heart rate goes high. So one and one fa- factor here, one reason, as you mentioned, it's quite hot. Even if you are in the shade, it's going to be hot. So your heart rate is going to be high. Uh, but also remember that you can get your heart rate to your threshold or above, even if you're not actually running that fast, like even if you're not l- running close to your VO2 max, because your threshold might be at at something like, 80% of VO2 max. For some athletes, it's as low as, it's much lower than that. It might be at 75% or 70% of VO2 max. So you might be far, far away, but as soon as you cross the threshold, you're still getting your heart rate up and you're in a non, uh, steady state, um, situation metabolically. So, so I think that heart rate can be very misleading in the type of running that, that you're doing. So if you are to do these kinds of intervals on the trails, uh, what you should do then is to actually use your RPE mostly, uh, potentially, r- well, running power if you have it also, uh, but otherwise just RPE. Ignore pace, of course, since you're un- running on hills and uh, ignore heart rate. Because the way that I think that you should uh, approach this when, when it comes to think about your time in zone for a workout like this is to just use the session goal approach. So, uh, so for example, so you will be measuring simply the workout prescription and execution and uh, and if you did what the workout prescription was then the workout prescription already tells you how much time you you collected in each zone so for example let's say i tell you to go out and run five by three minutes at your three to five kilometer race pace and you do that then we know that you spent 15 minutes at zone five pace wise and in terms of your actual oxygen uptake, your actual actual VO2, you probably spent uh, maybe 10 minutes uh, that was within 90% of the, 
of your VO2 max, which is considered like this is where you want to be when you're doing VO2 max workouts. Uh, so uh, yeah, may- maybe 10 minutes, hopefully something close to that if the recoveries were two to three minutes between intervals. And the goal would be to accumulate 15 to 20 minutes of work, at least for intermediate and advanced athletes, maybe 10 to 15 minutes for more beginner athletes at that zone five pace or power or RPE effort. And that will give you close to 10 minutes or even more than 10 minutes as your actual time that your oxygen uptake, your VO2 is uh, above 90% of your VO2 max. So, so that's how you should go about uh, time in zone, in my opinion, not looking at your heart rate, especially again, seeing as you have hot conditions there, it's not going to be uh, very accurate. And, and especially not when it comes to those quality workouts, it doesn't matter how much time your heart rate seemingly was in zone fa- five. If you didn't do those five by three minutes at your 3k to 5k race effort and it felt really really hard and then you had to recover for a couple of minutes and then go again and it was brutally hard again and brutally hard again and you felt that it was a very hard session at the end then uh, you're you're missing the point that's what these workouts are simply it's it's simple and it's quite beautiful in its simplicity i think so keep that in mind as well Uh, for a question whether there should be a cap on the work duration for accumulating a time in zone uh, well yes i not necessarily a cap but i think that if you do much more you accumulate much more than 20 minutes of time in zone using this session goal approach that i just described so again five by three minutes intervals that would mean 15 minutes at the zone that you want to to be in and uh 10 by 2 minutes would be 20 minutes at that zone. So much more than 20 minutes. I mean, 21, 22, totally fine. But but if you you don't want to go much above 20 minutes for your total work time, uh, because then you're either not doing the workout hard enough or you're getting into the realm of very diminishing returns and potentially setting yourself up for injury and just doing too much in one big session if you're trying to get 26, 27 minutes of VO2 max work in. And I guess I didn't quite answer the first question, actually, whether you can do these workouts on trails. Uh, my recommendation, if, if I were coaching you, I would say uh, I would prefer you to do most of your VO2 max workouts on the track or on flat roads to get uh, higher time at close to VO2 max and also to work on leg speed and neuromuscular efficiency. Uh, so, uh, so that's what I would tell you. But every now and then you can do these workouts on the trails. When you do do them on the trails, do respect the work to rest times and aim to get in 15 to 20 minutes of total work at a three kilometer to five kilometer race effort level if you have power that's perfect then you can measure it using that otherwise you just measure it using rpe when you're on the trails Uh, so uh, that's it no no heart rate no pace Uh, finally your question about elevation gain tracking Uh, there's absolutely no harm in tracking it of course but I don't see that as actionable information for a triathlete. It, it is for many mountain runners and for trail runners. They do track that. And for them, it is very relevant and very actionable. Uh, it's, it's almost the equivalent of us tracking, just tracking time, uh, duration of total training. Of course, of course, these runners do that as well, but, but it's so integral to their success in races to actually run a lot of elevation gain. But for us as triathletes, it's not. So I don't see that as actionable data to track, which means that, yeah, uh, I wouldn't do it. But again, 
there's no harm doing that. Uh, I do think, though, don't get me wrong, I do think that including hills as part of uh, steady endurance runs, for example, is great. Uh, also doing hills as part of tempo runs, uh, fantastic. So in the former case, maybe your weekly long run, uh, where you would shoot for going out at a zone two or maybe high zone two effort level. Uh, so, uh, so that would be one example of using hills. Uh, do go easy enough on the uphills. If there's no point going, going much above zone two, at least not for uh, extended periods. Uh, and the tempo runs, as I said, then you can let RPE and to some extent heart rate uh, guide you or, of course, running power. But tempo runs, I also l- really like prescribing them and doing them on hilly terrain. Uh, I get the feeling that since you are running hills most of the time, though, you might be constantly running moderately hard and not changing it up between a lot of very easy running and a little bit of very hard running. So uh, so also, this is another thing that we probably would come to at some point if I were coaching you, is I would say that maybe it might make sense to actually try to reduce the elevation gain hunt get off the trails for a little while or just take the non-hilly trails if you have such options because it actually may be holding you back i'm not i'm not sure of this i don't know this for a fact but it's a thought it's a feeling that i get from reading your message so uh, yeah i hope that that helps and good luck and uh, by the way it's brilliant that you have such a fantastic trail network Uh, you're making me very jealous All right, final question is from uh, Johannes in uh, Finland who writes, uh, uh, Hi, Michael. I was just wondering if you or people usually count mobility work as training time. So if you train for 20 hours per week and you do 30 minutes a day of mobility work, is the actual training time then 16 and a half hours? So you should not count mobility as that training time? uh, Or is it the other way around? It really doesn't change anything in my training, but I'm quite obsessed with my mobility work and try to do it at least 30 minutes a day. Uh, and I was wondering if my training hours have been 18 to 20 hours the way I've counted it, or would someone count it as 21.5 to 23.5? So I guess you have not been counting mobility into your 18 to 20 hours because somebody you're saying that somebody would, would add several more hours. Actually, yeah, this is a short and sweet question. Uh, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day but i would do it because i think the mobility is something that is very easy to skip and actually tracking it it makes you more accountable to it i find so that's why i track my my mobility work i encourage my athletes to do that as well because for most of them it's the same thing it's the thing that uh, some athletes skip and uh, and it's uh, that's not the idea and if tracking it and adding some duration to your total week gives you a little bit of motivation to get that work done then i'm all for it so uh, that is my what i generally recommend but either way is fine it's not as if it makes a big difference really Uh, so it's just a way to trick your mind and get some motivation i guess and and that's why why i think that it may make sense to track it as your uh, your weekly training hours because it is a form of training it's not you're not sweating and stuff, but it's still training. It's uh, a technical or training or a training where you're basically you're preparing your body to be able to do the other training that you're doing. So it's just as important and it's great that you're doing it. So I guess uh, that's uh, that's basically all that's needed for, for that question. It's a short one, but thank you for the question, Johannes, and good luck in your training and racing. 
Uh, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Uh, I want to give a listener shout out uh, today to Mike Sullivan, who wrote in and said, uh, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for your podcast, your training plans, and the questions you answer for me this year. I've gone from first time sprint triathlete who wasn't very fit uh, to successfully completing my first Ironman using your 20-week training plan last weekend. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have done anywhere near so well without all the information I learned from your episodes and uh, resources. Uh, I was really hoping to get under the 12-hour mark, which felt unachievable 20 weeks ago when I started the plan. It was a hot day and pretty windy on the bike, but all the hard work paid off and I got home in 11 hours, 17 minutes with a 534 bike split. I'm so, so happy. Thank you so much. I'll be recommending your plan to everyone I know. Uh, so, wow. Thank you, uh, Mike. That is amazing. Uh, congratulations on your achievement and uh, thank you for all the great feedback. Next episode is uh, on Monday. Remember, Mondays and Thursdays are podcast episodes or podcast days here so stay subscribed so that you don't miss anything and this monday i have an exciting interview coming up i interview uh, lachlan kirin who is uh, a scientific triathlon coach now just started a few weeks ago and he is a brilliant coach brilliant athlete professional athlete in his own right with some 50 professional 7.3 race starts and six or seven ironmans uh, so uh, he's got a wealth of experience to share and uh, that interview is really great so definitely tune in for that big thanks finally to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com remember their special valid until the end of august promo with the promo code that triathlon show 20 and that will give you 20 percent off your entire order of electrolyte products and thank you to roca with the best wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. You can find them on roca.com and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>